Amen. Please be seated. And take out your copy of God's Word. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10. If you're using the Bible in your row, it's on page 1007. Now, when I say God's Word, that's exactly what this is. Every word in Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is spoken to us by God. It, it comes through us through a, a human author, but there's also a divine author. And, and somehow in his miraculous power, he perfectly inspired imperfect people to write exactly what he intended. And, and therefore, all scripture is God's word. It's all breathed out by God. But if you've read the Bible, you know all Scripture's not equally clear, is it? And today's passage is one that I, I don't think it's actually one of the most difficult passages to understand once you, once you kind of uh, understand the context and what the author's trying to say, but it's one that has been confusing to many through the years and at, at times very unsettling for folks who, like all of us struggle with sin, and they wonder what it means for them. And so before we read the scriptures, we're going to go to the Holy Spirit, the author of scripture, and ask him to explain and apply this word to our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we love the word because it is your word, and in it we see and receive everything we need for life and godliness. But we know that not all of it is easy to understand. And there are some in this room who have at times been greatly afflicted by this passage. Because it seems to be indicating that perhaps even though they have trusted in Christ because their sins have continued, that they're not truly saved. Father, I pray that you would comfort the afflicted. But others, uh, undoubtedly, are comfortable in their faith and even lazy or complacent about it. And we pray that the warnings of this passage would afflict our consciences and awaken us to renewed obedience and zeal for Christ. So we pray that you would come, Holy Spirit, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. In Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews chapter 10, we'll start at verse 26 and read through the end of the chapter. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and the fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when, 
after you were enlightened, you endured hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. Um, I'm often asked the question, when you write a sermon, do you have a particular person in mind? And, and sometimes people ask that because it was particularly comforting, and they thought maybe that he knew what I needed, and sometimes it particularly stepped on their toes, and they want to know if I've been following them around during the week. Uh, do I have a particular person in mind when I write a sermon? You know, the answer is yes and no. Yes, I, I write every sermon with you in mind. And I mean that corporately, as the body of First Scots. Uh, I've, I've been here almost 10 years now, and, and I think I know a lot about this church family. And so I, I'm not preaching to people who may stumble across our sermons on the internet, though I pray that the Holy Spirit will use those. But I'm preaching to you with confidence that the Holy Spirit will apply his word to your heart. And so, yeah, I, I do have someone in mind when I write sermons, and it's you. And at the same time, I don't have one person in mind. I, I'm never thinking, you know, I really hope Mark's paying attention today because I'm just going to stick it to him. But with a passage like today, I, I do have broadly two kinds of people in mind. And if you were listening during the prayer a moment ago, you heard those two kinds of people. One is the person who is drifting in their faith and desperately needs to hear the warnings that are in this passage. And, and let me just tell you who this person probably is. This is the person who might look back and say, you know what, I'm safe. I don't need to hear the warnings because 20, 30, 40 years ago, I prayed the sinner's prayer, or I walked an aisle and came to saving faith. So I don't need to hear these warnings. But that same person may be in great danger because if you've truly received Christ, it's transformative. And so if there's not a vibrant expression of the Christian life in your life, I want to urge you that these warnings may be for you. The second person I have in mind in this sermon is the person who is serious in their walk with the Lord, who loves Christ, but is really scared by those words, if you go on de sinning deliberately. Those are scary words, aren't they? 
And so for that person who has dreaded Hebrews 10.26 because they have felt like it's going to out them as not being a sincere believer, even though they have tried to put sin to death, even though they, they, they really do love Christ, they feel like this passage sort of disqualifies them. I desperately want you to hear about the grace that rests behind this passage. And so some of you really need to hear the warnings. Others need to hear this word of grace. And so this is a word for all of us. The word of warning will remind us we must persevere in the faith. But the words of grace will remind us that if we really belong to Christ, we will persevere to the end by his grace. And that's what I'm going to be addressing this morning. First, we're going to look at a word of peril to the apostate. And then the grace of perseverance. So let's first look at at the peril of apostasy. And if you've been with us through Hebrews so far, you've heard about apostasy, but what is apostasy? Well, apostasy is an unbeliever, but it's not just sort of the -the run-of-the-mill unbeliever, a person who's never been to church, who's never heard of Christ. It's, It's someone who once professed to be a Christian and maybe had the outward signs of being a Christian, but has fallen away. That's what verse 26 is talking about. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now that's, that's hard to come to grips with because who hasn't gone on sinning? If you have been sinlessly perfected, I'm happy for you. But I want to ask your spouse if they think you've been sinlessly perfected. Uh, this passage has caused many believers to doubt their salvation because they said, you know, I knew better and I sinned anyways. Does that mean I am guilty of this deliberate sin that this is talking about? The context of this passage is not about believers who struggle with individual sin. That's not what it's written about. Actually, let me say, that's a sign of of spiritual life. If you are struggling with and fighting sin and seeking to put it to death, it never happens as fast as you'd like it to. And every time you think you make progress, three new sins pop up. But but if if you are fighting sin and you don't want that sin in your life and you're seeking to put it to death, that's actually a sign that you're spiritually alive, that you've been born again. This passage is dealing with folks who maybe have an outward profession of faith, but they're careless about their lives, who have no evidence of spiritual vitality, and their souls are in danger. That's who this is talking about. And so I want to be clear from the outset. If you think this passage is about somebody who trusts in Jesus but is struggling with ongoing sin, this passage is going to disqualify all of us. That's not what God or the author of Hebrews intended. It's, it's certainly a, a legitimate pastoral issue if you're struggling with sin, and we're going to come back to that at the end. But when you're a Christian, you don't stop sinning altogether. That's really when the battle starts, because you've, you've turned your, your, your arms off of God, and you've turned your arms to sin, and you've declared war against sin by becoming a Christian. This passage is talking about someone who once seemed to be and professed to be a Christian, but now has fallen away. They've given up on Christ, or 
They just want to live like the unbelieving world. And so they've, they've tried perhaps to find a way to both profess to be a Christian and live like the world. You know, think about the argument of Hebrews so far. It's all been Jesus is better, Jesus is better, Jesus is better. Jesus is better than what? Jesus is better than angels, Jesus is better than Moses, Jesus is better than Aaron, Jesus is better than the law, Jesus is better than Melchizedek. At every turn, the point of Hebrews has been Jesus is better. So when someone turns away from Christ, what they're saying is, I think something else is better. I think this world is better. I think there's a better way for me to stand before God. It's so relevant because this letter was written to a, a group of folks who were from a Jewish background, but as, as they heard the gospel, they came ostensibly to saving faith. Some of them, verses 32 and 33, show us they gave up a lot to follow Christ. They risked a lot to follow Christ. But what that persecution that was coming has done is it's caused some to fall away. And it's possible they didn't even think of themselves as abandoning Christianity. They just wanted a, an easier form of Christianity, one that wouldn't be so costly to them. You know, I always think of Paul's words to Timothy when he talks about Demas, and he says, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. And what does that mean about Demas' soul? I, I think the best we can tell is Demas said, you know, I don't want this kind of Christianity that's all about sacrifice and putting sin to death, and I just want an easy, comfortable life. And Paul says he's, he's in love with the world, and he's deserted me. I think that's probably the same story for many of these Hebrew believers. We just want an easy life. And, and they've become apostate. Now, I, I, I want to try to put this into our context because you are not struggling with the same things that the Hebrew Christians were struggling with persecution right now you and I are not thinking about losing life and limb for following Christ the way they are but I want you to understand this Ian Murray has this great quote scripture does not need to be denied for apostasy to begin all that is needed is that scripture takes second place in our calculations we we begin to see scripture as as, yeah, it's part of my life, but it doesn't govern my life. It doesn't shape how I see the world and how I live. That's the beginnings of apostasy. And that's very applicable to us because we have a world that is pulling us in lots of, sort, lots of different directions. But apostasy is when we say something else is more worthy than Jesus Christ. I'm going to follow it. Uh, families, it's a great idea, if you've never done this, read Pilgrim's Progress together. And, and whether you have children in the home or, or you're an 80-year-old couple, read Pilgrim's Progress. It, it's a wonderful story, and it's all imagery. And, and everybody's trying to make it to the celestial city. But some along the way, in fact, many along the way, take different routes. So they get caught up in the slew of despond, or they get distracted in Vanity Fair. And so many of them who started off with good intentions fell away. That's exactly what Hebrews is talking about, that Christ just takes second place. It's only when the believer consciously says, Jesus is better than anything else, that we persevere to the end. Otherwise, apostasy looms. 
I wonder about many of us in the church in America and here at First Scots. We long for a comfortable Christianity that costs us nothing. Is that you? Uh, that you show up to church and all looks well, but during the week there, there's no seeking Christ. There's no life of sacrifice. There is no being guided and led by the scriptures. And I want to plead with you, if that is you, realize these warnings are for you. Well, pastor, don't you believe in once saved, always saved? Absolutely. We're going to get to this in Hebrews 12. Jesus is both the author and perfecter of our faith. But I also know that there are many in churches today who think they were once saved but have never been saved. They have never come to saving faith. And that's what Hebrews has been talking about. Look back with me, just a quick review of, of the warnings in Hebrews. They're not telling you you can lose your salvation. They're telling you that there's this danger that you think you're a Christian and you're not. So look back at Hebrews chapter 2. Verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. You're telling me that People who have professed to be Christians can drift away from the faith? Yes, every day. All right, look over a chapter. Hebrews 3, verse 6. Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. There's an if there. Some will fall away. Skip down a few verses to verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And two verses later, verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And we'll just do one more. Hebrews 4, verse 2. Uh, for good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. And this is talking about Old Testament Israel, and there were some who heard the word and they believed, and there were others who heard the word and did not believe. That's why these warnings exist, because it is possible to deceive ourselves. It is possible to think we're believers and not be. And so if you're really a Christian chosen by the Father before the foundation of the world, regenerated by the Holy Spirit and kept by the Son, you won't commit the sin uh, of apostasy. And if you do commit it, if, you, if somebody does fall away, it means they were never uh, true believers in the first place. I want to give you two attributes of this sin of apostasy that it talks about here. First off, this sin is marked by defiance. It talks about deliberate, or your version may say willfully sinning. The person drifting towards apostasy hears the scriptures but does not give heed to them. Look over uh, at Hebrews 12 for a moment. This is another warning passage. Verse 25. 
see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Now, this is not the author of Hebrews saying, you better listen to me. He's saying, you better listen to God. And if you were to keep going, it says, because how are you going to escape if you ignore the one who speaks? Uh, To hear God's word is to hear the voice of God himself. And to ignore God's word is an act of defiance. I can remember in college, I I had an acquaintance who was raised in the church, a very evangelical family, um, had all the outward trappings of Christianity, but about halfway through, he said, I'm tired of being that kind of Christian. I want to be the kind that can claim Christ but also gets to do whatever I want to. Friend, to claim that Jesus Christ is Lord and then hold on to lordship of of your own life is an uh, act of utter defiance. I'm convinced that's what's behind so much of what's called deconversion today. Deconversion is a very self-righteous way of becoming apostate. Because people say, you know, there's something wrong with Christianity, and that's why I'm departing from the faith. You know what? Most of the time what they really mean is I want to sin and not feel bad about it, so I'm going to change who God is. I'm going to leave his word so that I stop feeling guilty. That is an act of utter defiance. And second, the sin is marked by unrepentance. You know, the thing that distinguishes a believer from an unbeliever, and if you've been here on Sunday evenings when I preach, we've been studying the life of David, and we just contrasted the life of David with the life of Saul. They actually made a lot of the same terrible decisions. So what was the difference between David and Saul? David repented, Saul didn't. The difference between the Christian and the non-Christian isn't, do I sin, but what do I do when I sin? A, a, A repentant person goes before God and confesses it and seeks the help to turn from it with hatred for their sin. The apostate person simply wants to hide their sin from the world because they care so much what the world thinks of them but will not repent of it before a holy God. What makes apostasy so awful is that you've looked at Jesus, you've heard the truth, and you've said, nah, there's something better out there for me. That's why the version I read said it scorns the Son of God. Some of the versions say trample him underfoot. But you've considered who Jesus is and you've said, you know, he's not really that worth it to me. He's not worth my life. He might be worth an hour on Sunday, but he's really not worth my life. And Hebrews says, all right, let's say hypothetically you do that. What are you left with? Because if you turn your back on Christ, there is no other sacrifice for sins. There's nowhere else to go. I, I think of those words in John 6 where Jesus has been teaching, and, and he's been teaching hard truths about things like election and, and sovereignty and grace, and the crowd just falls away. They wanted miracles, not teaching. And Jesus looks at the disciples, and he says, hey, are you going to fall away too? And they say, where would we go? You have the words of life. Hebrews is saying the same thing. You know, if you turn your back on Jesus, there is no sacrifice for your sins. You're going to stand face to face before God, dead in your sins and trespasses. Uh, 
Listen to Jesus' warning. Look with me at Matthew 10. I, I want you to see how severe this sin is, how dangerous this sin of apostasy is. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is telling the apostles that they're going to go out, they're going to preach the gospel, and some people are going to hear it and reject them. And in verse 15, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. You know, in the Jewish mind, there was nobody worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. And Jesus says, to hear the gospel message and reject it is far worse. The punishment will be far worse for you than even Sodom and Gomorrah, which were destroyed by, by fire. He says that's, that's nothing because for those who hear the offer of grace and reject it. In London, one of the places you can visit is the Imperial War Room, where Churchill often operated the resistance to the Nazis as they swept across Europe. And as you make it from room to room, one of the things that you can hear are audio from, from Hitler's speeches as he's trying to stir people up to incite people that this war is a good thing. This is what we need to do. And then you, you move to the next room and you hear the voice of Winston Churchill in one of his speeches to Parliament where he says this, we gave you the choice between honor and war. Speaking to Hitler, we gave you the choice between honor and war. You chose dishonor and you shall have war. You rejected the possibility of peace and you have war. Hebrews is saying if you reject Christ, you are choosing war with God. And guess what? God will win. And so here's the opportunity. Embrace Christ by faith and have peace with God. Or turn your back on him and reject him. And you will have God's judgment. That's why he says there, you will fall. He says it's, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I imagine this letter being written to 21st century American Christians, and some of them undoubtedly would say, you know, you, you really need to stop being so judgmental. Or only God can judge me. Or God knows my heart. Have you ever heard people say those things? That is the most terrifying thought in all of existence. If you have rejected Christ, the scariest thought in all of existence is God does know your heart, and only God can judge you, and God will judge. And so the author of Hebrews, I think, would respond to them with a trembling voice. I am not judging you. I am warning you of the one who will judge you if you scorn Christ you will one day fall into the hands of the living God. It's not an if, but a when. I think the Spirit, through the author here, anticipates an argument that we would hear today. Well, you know, I don't really like to think of God as a God of wrath and vengeance. He's a God of grace. You know, wrath and vengeance, those were so Old Testament. 
But, you know, we've got Jesus, so God's a God of grace, and in the end, I think he'll just forgive. Look at verses 28 and 29. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. In other words, a blasphemer on the old, in the Old Testament got the death penalty. How much worse punishment do you think will be the, deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? It's an argument from lesser to greater. Hey, if the death penalty was deserved for shunning Moses' law, what's going to happen to you who have heard the gospel and reject it? Now, don't take this argument of, oh, God's a God of grace, and I think he'll forgive me in the end. If you are not trusting in Christ, you are saying, I want God to judge me for in my sins. You were given an opportunity for peace, and you've chosen war, Churchill says. If you believe in a God who has no wrath, you believe in a God who is not holy. If he just winks at sin as if it's no big deal, you believe in an unholy God, and there is no such God. R.C. Sproul says, A God who is all love, all grace, all mercy, no sovereignty, no justice, no holiness, and no wrath is an idol. There is no such thing. If you're a Christian, you can't hear these warnings and be complacent. These warnings should drive us back once again to the cross as we see our desperate need of grace. The very thought of this God who is holy and just ought to promote a healthy fear of him to realize that the God who created me and has seen not only everything I've done, but has heard every thought I've ever had, he will judge sin. You know, that drives me back to the cross with gratitude for what Jesus has done. And it makes me cling all the more. And so rather than saying, oh, those warnings don't apply to us, once saved, always saved, these warnings should make you love Christ all the more. To reject that isn't, it's not only a sign that you are awaiting God's judgment, but God's judgment is already coming upon you. Because if you've read Romans 1, the judgment of God expresses itself through futile thinking. What could be more futile than to think that God's warnings don't apply to us? You know, it's not till we understand what we've been spared from that we really begin to love the one we were spared by. If we understand sin... It causes us to love Jesus all the more. And so after speaking of the perils of apostasy, he shifts his attention, and, and he talks then about the grace to persevere. In a sense, this is what one commentator said, he gave them a whiff of the fires of hell so that they may inhale the fragrance of grace. By grace, we simply mean that upon the cross, Christ took the hell that we deserve, and all who come to him in faith and repentance receive his righteousness. Grace means he took the hell I deserve and I get the heaven he deserves. 
And some of you are so tender-hearted and tender-conscienced, you read a passage like this and you wonder, is my faith real? Is my faith sincere? How do I know that I'll persevere to the end? And and to some extent, you can only say, that's just something uh, to be seen by the test of time. But the author here gives them several encouragements. Here's how you persevere in the faith. In verse 32, he says, make sure you really belong to Christ. Make sure you're really trusting him for grace. Uh, Look at verse 32 and following. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, that that means you, you learned the word, You endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. He's saying, you know, you came to saving faith and that faith endured through persecution. You've really understood the grace of God because it stood the test of affliction and trials. Others fell away, but your faith has stood the test. I can see it in you, he's saying. Beloved, do you belong to Christ? Uh, I wonder, if you have somebody in your life, a spouse, somebody close to you that you can say, hey, can you see evidences that I belong to Jesus? Can you see evidence that the Holy Spirit lives in me? Uh, Because the Holy Spirit, if he's in us, he lives through us. And the author of Hebrews is saying, hey, you've come to saving faith because I've seen it work itself out in your life. And then second, he says, keep looking to the return of Christ. Look at verse 37. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come. He's saying, live your life not looking to this world. You know, he talks about all that they lost in this world, but he says, but you weren't looking to this world. You're looking to the one who is going to come. You are looking to the return of Christ. So live your life oriented around the fact that one day Jesus is going to return. We don't know when. It may be in my lifetime, it may not. But don't grow weary of waiting on him because it may feel like a long time. But what does Peter say? Ah, with God, a day's, a thousand years are like a day. It may feel like a long time to you, but to an eternal God, it's just a snap of a finger. So fix your eyes on Christ, on his return. And then third, how do we persevere? By keeping on in the faith. How do you keep on in the faith? By keeping on in the faith. Seems like simple advice, doesn't it? But look at verse 38. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And you're going to come to chapter 11, and we're going to see that tendency to walk by sight. You know, Abraham got the promise, but it wasn't fulfilled in his lifetime. And and all these heroes of the Old Testament got the promises, but they didn't see them fulfilled in their lifetime. What's the point? Walk by faith. Don't walk by sight. How do you do that? By keeping your eyes on Jesus. At every turn, when you wake up in the morning, fixing your eyes on Jesus. When you go to bed at night, fixing your eyes on Jesus. That's the positive side of this warning. If the warning negatively is don't fall away, positively it's keep your eyes upon Jesus. You cannot be absolutely transfixed on Christ and fall away. It's impossible. So keep on trusting Christ as he's offered in the gospel. Don't turn away. Don't quit. Don't look somewhere else. It's so tempting to use the sermon title, Don't Stop Believing. You know, the song by Journey, but I decided better. But perseverance in the faith is evidence that your faith is Holy Spirit wrought faith. 
I know this passage could be unsettling to some, but that's not the purpose. It's intended to be an encouragement to those who belong to Christ. Keep on keeping on. Keep on keeping your eyes on Christ. Because here's the good news. If Christ has truly converted you, he will bring you home. He will not lose any that the Father's given him. And so if, if you belong to Jesus, keep your eyes fixed on him. That's, that's evidence that the Holy Spirit has given you faith, that your eyes are fixed upon him. And, and I, I don't know who needs to hear this today, but all whom Jesus has redeemed, all who truly trust in him, he will bring home. He is the author and perfecter of your faith. He's going to get us all across the river. None are going to drown. None are going to get lost. None are going to go back to the other side who are truly Jesus' people. And all who trust themselves to Christ will find him utterly and endlessly trustworthy. He gives us the grace to persevere. How do we apply this text? I want to talk to the children of this congregation. And if you're a child, if you're wondering, am I one of the children of this congregation? If you're still under the leadership of your parents, if you're still in the home and under the leadership of your parents, I want you to understand from this passage that there are going to be a million things in your life that are going to try to pull you away from Christ. It's going to happen. It will happen every day for the rest of your life. And it might be your friends right now who want to tempt you to go down roads that are contrary to the Bible and to what your parents have taught you. It might be a a, a professor in college who tells you you're a fool for believing the Bible. It, it, It might be work and other obligations who will pull you in so many directions that you're tempted to say, you know, I'll set my walk with the Lord aside. I'll get back to it when I'm older. You might, but more often than not, people who, quote, set their walk with the Lord aside for a time never return to it. Don't do it. Don't turn away. Some of you remember Finding Nemo. What does Dory say? Just keep swimming. Just keep swimming. What do we do? We swim, we swim. Children, what do you do? Don't turn away. Just follow Christ. Just fix your eyes on Christ again and again and again because all the rest of your life you're going to have reasons to turn away, but none are worth it. None are worth what it'll cost you. Second, a word to those in here that are struggling with habitual sin, and maybe you were dreading this passage because maybe you're struggling with addiction to to drugs or alcohol or pornography. If that's what you're struggling with today, let me just encourage you to speak to one of the pastors or elders here. Do not try to fight these sins on your own because as you conceal them, oftentimes they will crush you. We want to help you and encourage you in your battle against sin. Third, you and me, uh, we all know people who have walked away from the faith. And usually they have excuses. They will blame the church. Uh, they'll, They'll say, I just don't believe there's only one way. You know, that's so narrow and exclusive. If you love those people, will you go to them and say to them, 
Where are you going to turn in the day of judgment when you have turned your back on Christ? There is no longer any sacrifice for sins for you. Will you love those people enough to say, what is going to be your hope if you have turned away from Christ? You are in great danger. Love them enough to do that. Will they get mad? There's a decent chance they will. Again, to quote R.C. Sproul, he says, anytime you feel unfairly hated, don't forget you're also unfairly loved. Finally, in a few minutes, we're going to come to the Lord's Supper. And I want to urge you to examine yourself, to see, are my eyes fixed on Jesus, or have I taken my eyes off of him? Am I distracted by this world? You might find, you know, I don't know if I really am a believer, if I've ever really come to saving faith, or you might find that you've just done a, a really poor job of seeking him and keeping your eyes fixed upon him. But you know, that's what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 28, speaking of the Lord's Supper, he says, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Drifting into apostasy is kind of like how Ernest Hemingway described going bankrupt. He said, it happens slowly and then all at once. It, it, you're careless about your life, and then all of a sudden, your money's gone. Apostasy looks that way too. You're careless about sin. You're careless about attendance of worship. And then suddenly, you realize, I've left Christ. I, I am apostate. But if we use the Lord's Supper as a time to inspect our hearts. Am I truly trusting in Christ? Am I truly walking with Christ? Uh, it gives us, in, in a sense, a stopgap to keep us from drifting away. Use this time uh, to examine yourself. Am I trusting in Christ? Am I fighting sin? Is there evidence that I belong to him? Use the supper to refocus the eyes of your heart upon the king of heaven. Let's pray together. Lord, our God, we praise you for your word. We thank you that it contains everything we need, but I pray that, that we wouldn't simply mouth that, but that our hearts would be intent upon hearing and heeding what you've said to us today. Lord, for those who maybe are, are in great danger of drifting, I pray that you would reel them back in today. For those who struggle with fear uh, of whether they have committed this deliberate sin, Lord, comfort them with the grace of the gospel that in a sense, if, they, if they're even asking those questions, if, if they're even concerned about sin in their lives, that, that that's a very good sign that, that they do belong to you. So help us as we prepare to come to the table.